We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Well, again, welcome again to our Zoom presentation for Wednesday nights at our parish, and we're going to have a, an economic topic this evening uh, on the topic of distributivism, and we have a special guest that I'll introduce in a few moments, but let me give an introduction to begin our presentation. Back in my high school days, I had to do a book report on Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. The Jungle is a difficult book to read, especially if you're eating, since it recounts the horrible and unhealthy conditions in the meatpacking industry of Chicago back in the early 20th century. But Sinclair's book also speaks about the terrible treatment of workers in the stockyards of the Second City. Ridiculously low wages, dangerous working environments, child labor, et cetera, et cetera. Work days that would exhaust even the fittest men. The story, The Jungle, focuses in on a Lithuanian family that comes to the United States to find the American dream, but ends up living a nightmare. Sinclair describes the situation in the meatpacking plants in the following way, quote, Able-bodied men work from early morning to late at night in ice-cold cellars for six or seven months in the year. They never see the sunlight from Sunday afternoon until next Sunday morning. They cannot earn even $300 in a year. There are little children here in the factory who can hardly see the top of the workbenches, unquote. The Industrial Revolution brought with it many advances in productivity and transportation, but with it came uh, obviously some issues, radical changes in society. Many people left their farms and headed off to the cities. They left behind their tools, their self-sufficiency, their independence, and became wage earners who did not necessarily share in the wealth connected with what the factory produced. Unrestricted capitalism where Wealth and the means of production are often in the hands of just a few individuals is certainly an unhealthy situation for any town, city, or country. As the famous G.K. Chesterton once said, too much capitalism can lead to there being too few capitalists, with the great majority of workers being dependent, even enslaved, to various employers. Monopoly can be a fun board game, where individual players seek to accumulate as much wealth and property as possible without concern for their opponents or renters. But in real life, a few individuals monopolizing production hurts the common good. Individualism, materialism, and greed are great temptations for sure. At the time when Upton Sinclair wrote that book, The Jungle, many wage earners struggled to feed their families. 
for nearly 60% of their meager income just went towards their dietary needs. And since a worker could be fired at a moment's notice or have an accident that rendered him incapable of working, starvation was literally a concern. Sinclair saw the injustice of laissez-faire, unregulated capitalism, but unfortunately, most unfortunately, the author of The Jungle fell into even a greater evil, namely socialism. In fact, Sinclair has the main character in his book, enters a, enter a workers' meeting where socialists are speaking against the established order. And the meeting ends with the cry of the workers shouting, Chicago will be ours tonight. The evil of socialism can obviously be seen by looking at the two great socialist movements in the modern age, namely Hitler's Nazi party with the National Socialist Party in Lenin and Stalin's USSR or the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. In terms of economic socialism, the monopolies of a few capitalists controlling the wealth is replaced by the monopoly of the state. Allegiance is given to a centralized government that considers itself the highest authority, higher than family, higher than the church, higher than maybe even God himself. The greed so often seen in just a few capitalists who seek to accumulate wealth is now greed on a larger scale, where the have-nots wish to have and receive the goods of those who have, even if they have to be forcibly taken. The extreme of liberal capitalism led to another extreme, and the human family has suffered greatly under both systems. The greatest problem, again, with too much capitalism or the system of socialism is that it puts material needs and desires above spiritual ones. In this sense, capitalism and socialism are united and that they quarrel over an earthly wealth that you can't take with you when you die. A Christian does not despise, of course, this life on earth, but his material needs, his desire for earthly goods ought to be well below his desire for spiritual goods, especially the gift of sanctifying grace, God's divine life within us, our participation in the divine nature. The Christian who holds these principles lives a better and more reasonable life on earth. He lives more unselfishly, more generously, more penitentially. Christian pilgrims on a journey to heaven cannot carry much with them, but they know that in God they have the accumulation of all the wealth imagined. And finally, the church is not just a negative critic condemning various economic sort of injustices. Some of our thinkers have put forward other ways to deal with economic matters, including some thinkers who have put together something called distributivism. In short, distributivism seeks to spread the wealth to as many people as possible by having them share and the ownership of the means of production. Liberal capitalism often has only a few to share in the ownership of productive property, while pure socialism allows no private individual to own any private business. Distributive wants as many people as possible to earn a living without relying on another's property. 
If people own their own farm, own their own shop, own their own tools, they will have greater commitments for they share the wealth connected with ownership. In the end, no economic system is perfect, but only that system that acknowledges Christ's kingship over it and which puts people and families first is proper. With that introduction, I'd like to introduce our guest for this evening, Ryan Grains. And uh, Ryan, if, if you could maybe give us a little bit of uh, your, your, your biography uh, and, and maybe tell us uh, about your family a little bit and also especially about um, uh, the great book publishing uh, company that you have that puts out such great, great works. Well, thank you, Father, and thank you for having me on. Um, so it, I was born in uh, eastern Connecticut, a little, well, at the time it was a little town called Col uh, Colchester. Um, there, that's where I grew up and basically lived there. I'd, I'd say, you know, with the exception of heading over to New York City with a relative on a number of weekends when I was 16, 17. Uh, I pretty much lived there <laughs> until I went to college. So I went to college at uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville. Mm -hmm. And uh, where I did not distinguish myself as a good student, and largely I was, uh, the way I usually put it is, I was undoing the work of 18 years of public education and uh, learning what I should have learned in, in uh, secondary education during my four years at university. And I spent the, the rest of the years after university learning what I should have learned at university. And so a number of uh, endeavors and things that I've been involved in are largely autodidactic. And the, you know, the handful of a few things here and there. Um, I you know, examined the possibility of religious life, uh, had a short spell in seminary, and uh, left to try to figure out what I was going to do. And I started in Catholic education, um, which... Uh, I was in a diocesan school and I found that to actually actually be in a worse state than the public schools that I'd gone to, uh, to be perfectly honest. And so I was kind of shocked about that. So at around 2004, I met my wife and I moved to California uh, where we got married and, and I tried different things. And then I ended up becoming a retail manager for a number of years. Uh, and it was actually around that time that my interest in alternative economics peaked, especially because I was an asset protection manager and I saw the numbers. I saw the numbers, the amount of money that's going out uh, of this particular nefarious uh, retail chain, which I'll have occasion to mention later, and how much they could have paid the workers, you know, more. And not that they have to pay them everything, but there was such a vast amount of money that was going to the home corporate office in uh, in Arkansas. You get a better idea of which evil company I'm talking about. And they, uh, you know, and it just struck me, there's just something that's, that's, that's just absurd about this, about why this system is set up the way it is. And that got me, you know, exploring many of the issues we're gonna talk about tonight. And so, um, and then, then eventually I got out of there, got back into education, and then in 2014, uh, I started Mediatrics Press, which um, at first I didn't quite know what I was going to do with it. Um, it was actually a priest who showed me, hey, do you know you can get your own books made up now using print-on-demand technology? And I said, um, well, that's interesting. So I looked at it and said, wow, if I could make money, it'd be great. And then uh, the job market tightened in the last years of Obama. It was hard to get work. So I said, you know, I'm just going to put everything into this. 
and um, in the midst of that, I had a short time where I worked at Tan Books that also helped me a bit as we continued building the press. And the, um, in, in the basic mission as it formed and as I started getting some more books into print and more ideas was, well, I'm going to get, you know, because some books go out of print and there's really no good reason why. Some go out of print because nobody wants to look up the copyright, you know, and, and double check. Some go out of print uh, maybe because they needed to and you don't want to reprint those. So, it, so it, in the midst of that, uh, you know, I began translating uh, several books from Latin. Um, I learned Latin a little bit in college and pursued it the rest of the way autodidactically, mostly uh, by by reading it in Latin, memorizing, uh, you know, words I didn't know and double checking the syntax, and the grammar, and then going back and doing it again and doing that same page again until I had largely had a mastery of it. And by that you know, means was able to begin reading it fluently and, and understanding it as I read it, as opposed to constantly having my head in a dictionary. So that's, that's what allowed me to begin translating very rapidly. And then I took on different projects, uh, which I'm still working on now. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine is one. Uh, the, the, the whole of his controversies. I'm about in March, I believe now, although I should never give dates because I gave December earlier in the year and it's still not out. But um, the uh, Bellarmine's treatise on the sacraments in general on baptism and confirmation should be coming out uh, next month. I've got to finish up the sections on confirmation to get it to my editor and so we can get all that taken care of. And so, um, but, uh, you know, so I've got a number of uh, editions of the controversies into English and uh, also St. Alphonsus Liguori. It's another one I'm working in tandem. And so I'm hoping to finish a good amount right. of that this year. I want to recommend that too, to the people. Um, uh, Father Sean, who of course we all, we all know, um, he uh, has purchased a number of books, Moral Theology. Yeah, remember St. Alphonsus Liguori is the doctor of the church, but he's also the patron of moral theology. So that book being available, which Ryan has brought about uh, in English, is very, very helpful. So it's a great press, and what a great service he has offered to uh, the Catholic world, uh, uh, very, very much so. So speaking about economics there, um, Ryan, what is distributivism in a nutshell? In a nutshell, uh, distributivism looks to uh, there's complicated ways to, to render everything but we'll just put it this way distributivism is uh, a pol an economic philosophy or policy that aims to implement the social teaching of the church in such a way as to increase the widespread ownership of property, productive property not just mere because a lot of times you say property ownership people think of own owning a residential house or something of this sort and speculating on the, the cost of the real estate and uh, then we, we actually mean owning productive capital and th the reason for this is is manifold actually um, but the first is that the less capital the less property ownership you have the less power you have now in in modern societies we tend to associate power with going to the ballot box and um, I've been very mum on that for a very long time. I actually don't think voting accomplishes very much at all. And, um, and, and I think at this, after this last uh, election or selection, as I usually call it, more people might be warming to that particular. I, I, remember, I remember you saying that it's not an election, it's a selection. Right. It's been pre-selected, right? <laughs> so that, that's I remember, always- I remember you saying that one of your 
broadcast. Yes. Right. <laughs> so that's always been my joke about about them that uh, the, the selection and um, show business for ugly people is what politics is, or uh, the America's Next Top President reality show, etc. So, but if you look at too, um, there was a study that was carried out that looked at uh, what people surveyed want in given elections and what they either they're voting for and how much of that actually gets done as well as examining you know the letters that go to congressmen and, and women saying hey we would like this and we would like this and how many of those things even make it to the floor for a vote almost none um you know very very few and so the conclusion is this fits the classical definition of an oligarchy really and so your power is not uh voting if it accomplishes anything, you get one very flawed and compromised person, depending on which side you are, right or left, what things you hold as valuable for us. We vote and the abortions are still happening. The, uh, the, the degradations of family and uh, so many other injustices still go on, uh, just with uh, somebody who's wearing a different hat and claiming they're going to do different things and might affect it a little bit, but not very much. So the next is where you spend your dollar. That, now that has a bit more power to it. And we've seen that be successful in various places where you say, well, I'm not going to shop here and I'm not going to go to this place and I'm not going to use this service because of, um, you know, what they do in the other fold. Or sometimes they say, hey, we don't care, or at least at the present, they'll, they'll get money from the government, like in the case of Netflix, which uh, lost, I, I think, over a third of its subscriber base uh, between Cuties and this one movie they did about our Lord, which is horribly blasphemous. And the, 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 the cancellations were massive. Any other company would have folded. But they're one of the unofficial branches of government, so they get money out of the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program. But in general, if you have a business and you say, well, I'm not going there and I'm not supporting this, they'll either fold up or they'll change what they're doing very quickly because, as they say, money talks. Now, Daniel Webster in the 19th century said um, power is nothing other than the ownership of property. Owning property gives you skin in the, in the game, as it were, in terms of being a member of the, the community, a member of the state. Uh, it, it allows you the independence from various powers or social institutions or what have you to, you know, to manage your wealth and to manage things. It, you know, in a society that you know, generally has this widespread property ownership is a stronger society. And this is also what Pope Leo XIII teaches in Rerum Novarum. This is what uh, Pius XI teaches in Quadragesimo Anno. We'll be talking about those documents a little bit. Um, also Pope John Paul II in Centesimus Annus. They all lay out a program for how it is that we're going to have um, you know, a society, an ownership society. Now with distributivism, that's one view of how to do it. There are others we'll talk about. One is solidarism, uh, is or solidarity, which uh, was outlined by the, the uh, Jesuit theologian back when that was a good thing, um, Heinrich Pesch in, in the last century. Then, um, and even before that, if I'm not mistaken, then um, there's other there's other movements. Sometimes they call themselves the Just Third Way, etc. And it's the same with uh, what we're going to be critiquing in capitalism. Capitalism is not a monolithic, uh, you know, economic philosophy. There are many branches and ideas within that. Uh, one of the most predominant today is Keynesianism. Although I argue that Keynesianism is just another form of Fabian socialism. Um, and then you have the Austrian school, which is very popular. Uh, it's embraced by a great many libertarians because it connects also with the political philosophy and many other things. Um, you have uh, anarcho-capitalism, which also embraces the Austrian school very heavily. 
Uh, you have the Chicago School of Economics, which is also, related, for example, founded by Milton Friedman, very uh, influential school of economics, and so on and so forth. Among socialism, you have different thoughts, too. You have, I mentioned the Fabian Socialists. They're one of the first very big and notable ones, although the French Revolution is itself a socialist and communistic movement. Um, it's already in the, the late 18th century. You have uh, democratic socialists, Christian socialists, you have uh, any kind of socialist under the sun, and of course you have communism, so it, which, is, which Marx considered the final and most efficient stage. And that's, so the difference is largely uh, communism considers itself very scientific socialism, whereas say the Fabian socialists or, or many of the European flavors of socialism don't look at it in those, those in, in those kind of terms. They see it more as a, a, a transcendental and philosophical, uh, you know, movement rather than a scientific one. So, and that that's pronounced in rhetoric. Often, though, the the fact is that socialism, as it uh, it was advocated historically, and what it actually proposes to do, is make the state the universal capitalist. Right. And so by eliminating private property rights, by eliminating the ownership of private property by anybody and investing it in the state. Right. And for the socialist, property is going to be, you know, people will still in a certain way, you know, use and, and, and have some sort of property, but it's not rightly theirs. It actually belongs to the state. And so classically, it's understood the, the property ownership doesn't so much consist in the thing owned, but the rights to the thing possessed. That's really what the what is, is property ownership entails. So socialism means to get rid of the rights over what's held and to expropriate it as the state sees fit uh, in order to affect capital and, and, and labor. Now capitalism, uh, those of my persuasion who argue for some form of a third way, we often say it does the exact same thing, except instead of the state being the, the universal capitalist, the the uh, the few very wealthy capitalists in the society the 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 elite as it were end up owning most property and if anyone wants to question that particular movement you just need to look at the fact that bill gates is now the largest owner of farmland in the united states as of uh, i think it was reported in forbes a month ago so it, you know and we have to scratch our heads as and, and this goes to chesterton's paradoxical statement the problem with capitalism is it produces too few capitalists is that what ends up happening in the capitalist system is that as the uh, it, the individual uh thrust the, the ra uh, rabid individualism of capitalism says that the most important thing is for my self-interest to pursue my gains and to acquire uh, you know, you know, the, the goods and services and to create the goods and services to make as much money as I can. And then most capitalist theorists say, well, that will in turn benefit society in other ways because they will spend and they will produce, they'll do this. And so it's, it, it, what happens is then that more and more capital as they aggregate it concentrates into fewer and fewer hands. And at, as a result, when times get tough and people end up having to leave their, their, their property, their productive property, and it gets sold off, the capitalist class comes in and buys it. It doesn't just sit idle. And so the result is more and more productive property is isolated in the fewest of hands, much as the bureaucrats of a Politburo in the Soviet Union or the industrialists in New York. And that's essentially how, the, and I know the capitalists will find this, and no, no, capitalism is this, and it is this. And the socialists will do the same thing too. Oh, it's not this, it's this. 
And so the it's important to look at the real, uh, you know, terms of what it actually does. And the same thing for distributism, because then our opponents uh, will say that's just socialism. The socialists will do it to say, see, you're just like us. And the capitalists will say, no, you're just socialism, isn't I don't have to deal with you. So it, so it's important to look at what the what principles are involved in each system and what they hope to obtain. I was uh, thinking as you were speaking, one of our good parishioners, I think, gave a good description or a good analogy, perhaps is better to say. And maybe you could comment on this. So you have these two well-known economic systems, capitalism and socialism. At least people kind of know the names, right? And this person described it in this way. In a sense, there are some sins which are natural sins. So a person, man and woman who are not married, somehow get together in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a carnal fashion. That would be like a natural sin. It, it's meant to be, in a sense, man and woman is in marriage, but they have sort of abused it, obviously. And then socialism, it, he compared to an unnatural vice, where there was nothing really about socialism that could sort of be recovered. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, that capitalism is something that can be abused so very easily, there's some dangers there, but socialism, there's something intrinsically wrong with it that is, is inhuman. I think the mind of the church rather demonstrates that very idea in as much as through the social encyclicals, you do not have capitalism condemned by name. You have certain very clear um, <clears throat> uh, ideas that you find in the Chicago school and the Austrian school that are condemned explicitly, but capitalism is not condemned by name. Socialism, on the other hand, is condemned uniformly and uh, in exactly in its definitions, in its... its um, its accidents in its philosophy and its its uh, its, its formal principles, in, in *Rerum Novarum*, in *Quadratissimo Anno*, in so many of the the social encyclicals of the popes, right? It's formally condemned. So now the, the social Christian socialists and Catholics who hold to socialist positions will say, well, but they're condemning this, and, and but not this, where they they almost completely ignore. I believe it's number 120 in Quadratissimo Anno, which explicitly condemns, uh, you know, socialism as such. And Pius XI said, no one can be, a, no true Catholic can be a true socialist. And so if you are in any way a true socialist, you know, you can't. And so, and then if you're not, well, you're abusing the term. One of the problems in socialism too, historically, is especially when we go back to the 19th century, is the socialists are always uh, appropriating as many terms as they can to create the widest appeal. And so that, or even uh, uh, throwing off the name of socialism altogether and using something else. So for example, Georgism, uh, that the, the philosophy of Henry George, which uh, I believe it's Henry, unless I'm mistaken. Um, you know, ultimately, his his idea is that we should get rid of all taxes, one hundred percent, except for uh, a tax on, you know, the, the use of land. And his idea is that nobody will own, uh, you know, property, and and anyone using property that produces a profit with that with that property, that will be one hundred percent of that will be taxed. And as you break down uh, George's idea, it comes into so if I produce, so if I, I raise animals, actually, apart from uh, producing books, uh, you know, pigs and, and sheep and, and whatnot. So if I sell, 
you know, a whole, you know, lamb, right. And I go do the work and cut it in and uh, butcher it and everything. And, and if you get all the cuts and prepared and somebody buys that, according to Henry George, the government would acquire the entire profit because it was made on the land. That's not going to last very long. But what, what, what happens in effect, the state is now the owner of all capital property in terms of its use. So now we have, you know, basically it's another form of socialism uh, when you get down to it. So you have socialists that try to use the, the, the notion of the gospel like uh, Henri Saint-Simon in, uh, in, in France. He actually um, talks about the, the, church, the kingdom of the church on earth and he, you know, viciously attacks the Catholic church um, and all of his followers too. And they, they, his followers end up founding the Fabian Socialist in England. And what is their big thing? We're going to found the church on earth. And uh, just like in the Acts of the Apostles, and that's the true church of Jesus, not this, this Catholic Roman Catholic thing with the princes of the church. And so they love the Fraticelli in the Middle Ages, right? These group of apostate Franciscans that uh, fall into a lot of very odd and strange ideas and, and especially deny all private property. In fact, this is actually a fun factor in, in terms of our modern context within uh, traditionalist circles. Uh, the Fraticelli, at one point when uh, Pope John the uh, 22nd had written a, a papal bull formally condemning the idea that Christ and the apostles held no property whatsoever. Um, and, and the, uh, the Fraticelli declared he's a heretic and therefore he has lost his office and he is not the Pope. And therefore we cannot have anything to do with him or any priest and bishop in communion with him. So the Fraticelli would set up their own independent chapels through Northern Italy and they would in Southern or Italy. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so it, um, we've been here before. <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless. Why do you think it's given this why is it given the name distributivism or distributionism? What, why is it given it that? Why is that the name that's sort of defined what this economic system is? So the name of distributivism uh, was first, uh, unless I'm entirely mistaken, it was first used by J.K. Chesterton uh, to describe the, the economic philosophy at hand. And uh, Chesterton was actually writing a book uh, responding to a Fabian socialist named Tawny called What's Wrong with the World? And in that work, uh, you know, he, he talks, he's not so much enunciating his own system as he is rejecting the Fabian socialist system, because he had been there and he knew how bad it was. And so he had left that particular thinking. Um, but he had read Rerum Novarum. And uh, Rerum Novarum has this in number 33, to cite the wise words of Thomas Aquinas, as the part and in, in the whole are in a certain sense identical, so that which belongs to the whole, in a sense, belongs to, a, to the part. Unquote. Among the many engraved duties of rulers who would do their best uh, for the people, the first and chief is to act with strict justice, with that justice which is called distributive toward each and every class alike. So distributive justice, not distribution, because people see distributivism and they think, oh, redistribute, which is literally like if you see the word gift and you see regift, it doesn't follow. But that's, but, you know, that's what you start thinking. And it comes from the Aristotelian concept of distributive justice, which is essentially this. Distributive justice deals with how society distributes its common goods. So Aristotle defines these as, quote, this is from the ethics, things that fall to be divided among those who have a share in the constitution. And he means the constitution of the, the, the community, the state. 
Um, corrective justice, on the other hand, deals with the justice in exchange, namely with the transactions between individuals. And so this distinction consists in exchanging equal values and having an equal amount before and after the transaction, right? At least as we're talking about corrective justice as far as business transactions go. So equality in exchange, which is the origin of justice, um, it becomes the origin of just price theories that you'll see the scholastics use and so many others, uh, the Spanish scholastics also. So, so you have these two notions of justice and they have to work together, okay? And so, and this is one of the problems. So you have um, capitalism tries to have corrective justice without distributive justice and socialism tries to have uh, distributive justice without corrective justice. Okay, and it's ultimately one of those two things, whereas, whereas distributivism says that, you know, we need as a society to have distributive justice, as in, you know, the, the, which we basically means that as we can, you know, we have our common goods and the means to participate in the commonwealth with power as citizens by that property ownership. And the, uh, the corrective justice means that and when we engage in our business transactions, all the correct values are being exchanged. Things are not being expropriated for the benefits of others and so on and so forth. So, and then the, and then the next question, of course, becomes how you get there because then people says, you know, who does the distributing, right? Is the common objection. And the answer is rather more um, the market to take, to borrow from the libertarians. The system is essentially that if it is possible, to uh, correct with the economic situation we're in now and, a, and, a, and arrive at distributive justice in, in a peaceful way. It's something that is going to come from the ground up. It is not going to come from a top-down state initiative. Um, and if I could say something too, a lot of modern distributists, um, and I'll, I'll get in more about neo-distributism later, but there's a lot of modern distributists that seem to have an over-reliance on the government. And as we'll see in uh, a lot of third way thinking, such as in solidarism and also the social encyclicals themselves, the role of the state is extremely limited. Okay? It, the state is not supposed to take care of you cradle to grave. And once you unleash the state, it starts, you know, it's like, it's like tomato in Italian cooking. You know, it starts getting in everything, right? So now you have this problem where the state is doing things it shouldn't be doing and usurping jobs that it shouldn't have. So one of the problems you get to under uh, under capitalism, it's necessary, it necessarily exists under socialism, is uh, regulatory capture. And we see this time and time again in so many industries. Uh, there's this problem here, let's say in, in, in farming, right? You get a farm bill that goes through Congress. What do you know? There's, there's not a whole lot for uh, various farming operations. There's certainly no money for uh, people to set up small and sustainable farms, but there's a good amount of money for industrial farming farming and like Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto, GMO seeds, all the big DuPont, all the big corporate companies that are uh, maximizing their profit at the expense of our health and our biosphere, right, with the, the productions of pesticides and chemicals and the poor quality of the food that they produce. But they somehow, wait a minute, we're trying to correct all the problems they're causing, but they get all the money. And the reason for that is the way our, our, our legal system is set, or not a legal system, our uh, representative system is set up, is that members of Congress have to buy their ways onto various committees. Otherwise, they can't get in there. If you want to sit on one of the very important committees, like Ways and Means or, or what have you, um, and you don't want to be stuck in some low committee that nobody thinks is particularly important, you have to pay for that seat. But your congressional salary will never cover that. 
it basically designed the system to sell out to the lobbyists. And that's one way they've crafted it today. 150 years ago was simply bribes. And uh, you have a lot of political cartoons from the 1820s about this. So that the large corporations, you know, you know say, oh, we hear you're going to regulate. Uh, well, let us write the legislation for you. Or the, you know, the, the government officials themselves will say, all right, we need to get some regulation in. How would you like to be regulated today? And in the end, you're just never going to get anywhere. Right. And especially you see so much of the critique. Oh, corporations own the government. We need the government to do something about this. <laughs> How is that going to happen? It's not. It, and it's right. completely against the interest of those who are currently running the bureaucracies in government, irrespective of whether it's Republican or it's Democrat or, or what have you. And there's obviously there are people there who are, you know, not evil, but they're the exception that prove the rule, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Or at least they're not, you know, doing bad things. So we can't trust the government to affect the move to a distributed state or we wouldn't quite get it to a state because it's not so much a, a line of political action as it is the economic way of life we want to establish so the so anyway so if you do it from the ground up and there's a there's a number of things we'll talk about for ways to to do that people have to want private property that's the other thing so hiller belloc and we'll talk to chester belloc in a little bit hiller belloc in his essay on the restoration of property, one of the very first things he says is that unless people want productive uh, property, we will never see a restoration of property because you can't force it. And it's against the principles of distributism to expropriate wealth. That is the state to come in and say, all right, well, you have too much capital, so we're going to take it from you and give it to this one. Because that and this is a fundamental injustice that's contrary to Catholic teaching. It's theft. So you can't do that. So the way you would distribute is it would be economically viable for the, the enfranchisement of workers into ownership options. And the only way you'll do that is to show that this is economically viable by somebody doing it. And or people coming together and forming associations, or you could form occupational groups. In fact, in early America, De Tocqueville references that one of the things that he sees in France uh, is that you have the state doing this or that or the other thing. In England, you have some great gentry that, that wants to name for himself and does and puts money into this and that. But in America, all the average people, he said, would come together. And, and form associations and pool money collectively to help get people off the ground. And that is essentially the, what guilds did in the Middle Ages was one of their jobs. Guilds had other things that they did. Um, guilds are always attacked by the capitalists because they had rules about things you can't do. So you couldn't uh, pay people low wages. You couldn't produce inferior quality work. Uh, you couldn't um, you know, work at night because working at night usually lit because when you didn't have good lighting in those days, you know, you, it would uh, lead to producing poor quality of work. Uh, you, you couldn't sell bad meat because you would be booted from the guild and then nobody would buy your, uh, you know, your whatever meat you were putting out. So as a butcher, you had to follow the, the rules because it's also a charity for your neighbor who's going to buy these things. You want to be selling them things that are the, you know, that the quality that they're paying for is again then otherwise we're violating corrective justice and things of that sort so the guilds had that really uh well-made function and we can bring those back although not as they were because this is not an anachronism we'd bring them in a way that would suit society today so you would have essentially an occupational group now often things like this are called corporatism and corporatism is almost exclusively today identified with uh, with nazism 
And, and that's a bit of a, a historical misnomer, really, because corporatism, I mean, right there, it's right there in the American colonies. This is, you know, all the associations that Tocqueville was referencing are essentially occupational groups or corporate bodies. Um, so the idea of corporatism and corporate bodies, these kind of associations, uh, in, they were founded in Italy. Uh, Mussolini actually found some of these, and this is why where the association with fascism sort of begins, um, where people think that yeah, this is this is a fascist thing, but it's not actually. The way Mussolini ran it was the state came in as a strongman, and you would make you know, so workers, producers, and uh, you know through these associations that would represent the government as well as the business, everyone would leave at the table and be happy, and that's how it worked for Mussolini. Hitler used them in, in a rather different way, mostly to compel obedience to the Nazi party and uh, for spy services, but uh, they were also used. So P that's one of the reasons why people see that and they say, oh, that's corporate, that's fascist, we don't want that. But you actually don't need a, you know, a strong state to use this particular model. Even New Deal legislation had attempted to incorporate uh, some of these corporatist ideas. And so if you want to you know, uh, go after FDR for that, uh, anyone's welcome. Um, but there it is. I mean, if you can set up a group that is like a form of insurance and you think of, um, you know, medical, you know, people that they, they can't afford certain type of machinery and you have a medical guild or an occupational group or whatever you want to call it. And they pull the resources for you to get this particular machine because you are a member of the same group. And then you likewise will pull the money in for another guy who needs some other type of machine to, uh, for, you know, for whatever medical uh, services. And then too, uh, we need to get to a number of other principles here. So in distributism, so we, I've kind of outlined, you know, how these types of things could work um, if you, you know, if you had a uh, peaceful transition to this type of economy, it would have to come from the ground up from one people wanting this type of thing two just enacting it and three making it uh, have value. So there are places in the world that have done this, by the way. So there's um, one, one of the ones distributors usually talk about, actually. So it's kind of an overused example, but the Mondragon Corporation in Spain. Now, they were founded in the, uh, the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War uh, because the Basques fought against Franco and they lost. So now, uh, you know, the government more or less locks them out of loans and capital because so many of them are actually communists and they have to be watched. So, and I'm not trying to make any commentary for or against Franco in this. This is just the reality of the, that particular history. So it was actually a Catholic priest who had decided to put these various ideas of Catholic social teaching in place and establish uh, a corporation, which would be a corporations within a corporation of, uh, you know, to, to, with its own bank and its own man, uh, financing and so many other things. So he act they actually created a distributist cooperative of owners who had the various arrays uh, of ownership from actual productive capital to, um, you know, co-owned employees with stocks in this actually worked very well. It still works today. It's a very large corporation, actually. Um, and that was because the government shut them out. So they had to do their own thing, which is, again, one of my arguments why you don't need the government to try to create things like this. You just need people who know how to work on a problem, who, who like, you know, solving these types of issues and have the will to take risk and say, let's try to create a model of ownership. Uh, another, uh, also under Catholic auspices in Italy, and it's called the Emilia Romagna Cooperative. Now that this cooperative works a bit differently instead of a lot of owners and co-owners, it's people who own specific uh, businesses that do certain things in manufacturing. Uh, 
And so as you will bid with the cooperative to get this type of thing built, say a plane or whatever. And then uh, all the different uh, companies within the cooperative will work together to get that contract done. And then there'll be another one and then you will work with a different array of companies, right? So it's, you know, it's another way of doing the same type of thing. All, all while, you know, maintaining, you know, the prop, the capital ownership, which means a, the people have a little more power, the people have a stable income. Okay. And, you know, in, are they rich? Well, they don't need to be because distributism is not trying to make you rich. It's trying to make you, you, know, you get, you know, provide for your material subsistence. So, and that leads to the nature. What is the economy? What is uh, so many things? So the, um, hold on a second. So a rightly ordered economy is the means whereby the families produce and acquire goods necessary for their sustenance in life while they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. That's why God created, you know, the, the economy. Essentially, that's why, you know, the, the, the way the world works where there is such a thing. Uh, property rights, especially after the fall. Uh, all of these things, why do they exist? They exist so we can acquire the goods we need while working out our salvation. That is what a Thomistic uh, notion of the economy would be. So, so the question is then, you know, what are some other principles in distributism that get us closer to that? So, and I've mentioned limiting governments, so the subsidiarity, smallest possible unit does a thing. And that's a, a principle in uh, Catholic social thought. You know, you don't need government programs of this sort and that sort for your regular activity. Um, you just basically have, you know, the smallest unit that is suitable for a thing. Not the smallest that is absolutely possible in every situation, but the smallest that is suitable to perform a task will do it. So in the question of certain businesses, uh, there are things that can be done and often are actually done better by smaller entities rather than larger ones. Larger entities produce a lot of waste and you get into the law of diminishing returns and so many other things, and which they end up absorbing because their size, but they're actually not producing a better quality uh, product. Food is a great example. Medicine is another great example. <clears throat> if anyone wants to get into the study of medicine, how in the 1920s, uh, around then, you know, it's when this started to change. But just before then, you had a number of different fields of medicine that had different things they worked on. Some were for chronic health. You go to your apothecary and he would pr pr provide for you a remedy um, or antidote a, a problem from something you ingested or what have you. Uh, you, you would have, and they would deal with many of your chronic health uh, issues. You would have, um, you know, chiropractic for other sorts of chronic health issues. And you had your allopath for your emergency medicine, which um, then you have uh, the Rockefellers begin investing into medicine, just as they had invested in PR. So you can still find old books, even uh, I think it, uh, there's a book that uh, Tan sells now. It's like Our Pioneers and Patriots. And they have this wonderful chapter about how wonderful Rockefeller is and nothing about <laughs> what he was really like because he'd be essentially paid for that kind of PR. So what he does is he begins investing in medicine. He sets up medical schools and all of these follow allopathy, applied to things that allopathy was never done before, uh, never, never done, used for in the past, which is uh, your chronic health. Oh, well, we'll, we'll create a drug that'll, that'll do this, or why don't you do this? And here, take some aspirin, which uh, allopaths killed I don't know how many during Spanish flu by just, just giving them as much aspirin as they could take. And the result uh, was a lot of dead people. 
And it's often not acknowledged because what it did is it, it suppressed the body's uh, immune response. And then that brought on what today we call a cytokine storm. And then a lot of people would just die shortly after. So, uh, but that became the standard medicine and medical practices. So now you have hospitals, they're big for-profit businesses and they don't really want to cure you because I mean, they're individual doctors who do and actually care about their patients, but the system doesn't want to cure you. The system wants to keep you ill because now you are a customer. Now, if we look at a decentralized thing, it's not this big mass of pharmaceutical giants and hospitals that have these massive amount of money coming in and going out and so many things. Um, what if you had doctors who were essentially cash only freelance doctors? They're the same doctors who feel abused by the system that they know doesn't want to cure their patients, but who themselves want to cure the patients. And you, know, and you have various disciplines that are allowed to flourish and, if you, and they, they, they operate in a certain sphere. And you could also, there is again, occupational groups to provide for insurance to cover these types of things. So it's, it's one of so many areas, this smaller unit in medicine for chronic uh, illnesses, for you know a lot of the daily things you know they're actually far better suited to deal with them than a big massive hospital um now on the other hand uh if you're talking about like emergency surgeries and heart transplant well, you know, it's not actually moral to do a heart transplant uh, that's another issue to get into but you're doing these very complicated surgeries or what have you that's going on a uh, major heart surgery is the better example to go for um, you know, that's something that's, that's, that's unique. It's extraordinary. It's not what, you know, most people in the population are suffering on a, on a daily basis. And those could be covered in a different way. And maybe a larger unit's needed for that. Uh, again, like producing computers, uh, transistors now are made with machines that have almost microscopic parts setting up these transistors uh, and whatnot. So how would one guy own a shop that could do that? We couldn't, all right. The, the, the technology of it doesn't make that possible. So instead, and he would work, you know, together with, um, you know, in a sort of co-owner model. And in this type of model, you can invest, you're investing in the creation of the company. And essentially, you, you know, you own various shares in the company. If you decide you want to leave that company and move to another one, you could actually sell out your shares. And there is much of the value of your labor as someone else now. He didn't do the work to create the company, but he's now paying his way into it. So now he owns you know, in a part of that company also as a laborer, right? And there's there's other models too for how laborers can be enshrined uh, into the system itself. And I'm just gonna pull up what I have on that here. So, and this actually comes into some of the limitations too. So the social encyclicals, when they address economic matters, um, you know, they're, they're purely, you know, purely, you know, social science matters, uh, like uh, this economic principle or that, unless it's dealing with the morality of human activity, it's, it couldn't really be considered to be binding as faith and morals. But because economics is a social science, and it, and it deals with what activity, whose activity, not the invisible hand of the market, human activity, and because it's dealing with that human activity, they, the church can pronounce on moral principles that affect how we make transactions with one another, whether we're talking about it through distributive justice or uh, corrective justice. And so, but now this is where, uh, you know, they, they had made an assumption that didn't prove correct. So Leo XIII and uh, Pius XII had essentially assumed that universal capital ownership must be financed through past savings. And so they recommended workers be paid more, i.e. a living wage or a family wage, to enable them to save enough to purchase capital. 
right? And that this would solve the problem. People would have more money. But um, apart from increasing cost in, in production and whatnot, it actually didn't solve the problem. And we see that now where employers are trying to move to lower those wages, unfortunately. But what it is, is that it's not because you shouldn't have a just wage or a family wage. It's not because you should actually have something approximating that. But we need to have a financial system that supports it. And that's the other thing is that you can't look at one thing alone. We need to look at the totality of the system. And you can't just say in one area, okay, so we want a family wage. So we want to raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour, right? That'll solve all our problems. Well, no, it won't because it, it, it balances out everywhere else. I mean, think about... Um, you know, back directly to uh, corrective justice, employment is a two-way street. Not only does the employee have rights, but so does the owner. And so does the employer. He has rights too, right? Apart from that, the work is done and done well. And he has the, you know, the right that uh, he's not forced to pay you more than that particular work is worth. And if he, you know, if this type of work, you know, can't produce enough of it, you know, by nature, to pay a family wage, then it's not actually the type of work for a family job, you see. It's probably more likely something that somebody could do on his own um, as, as a private owner. But beside that, um, you know, so you can't demand more from the employer than he is actually capable of paying. Uh, not to say that, you know, because when you look today, there's a lot of employers who could pay very much more, but don't because they're maximizing stocks. And I won't get into the stock market or anything like that because it's a rigged casino and getting into the the, the the endless uh, tent in you know, a tangents of how that all works is uh, we don't want to deal with that really today. But um, so anyway, so this didn't actually, you know, work out the way Leo the 13th and Pius XI had imagined in uh, Europe or in the United States. So there is a certain thinker named Louis Kelso. And what he wanted to do was address how, how to um, redistribute the existing wealth in, 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 um, in society without expropriating it from somebody and giving it to somebody else. So how can we affect basically that, that capital ownership becomes more widespread? And so his idea was to finance widespread ownership of new capital or transfers of existing capital by expanding bank credit. And so you avoid the presumed necessity of confiscation or redistribution this way. And instead you're enfranchising people into ownership of existing capital. And so, and this is usually called ESOPs or employee stock ownership plans. And I could go into quite a bit about, about those, the nitty gritty of those, uh, if anyone wants later and was a question about it, but essentially that idea. So here's another way that we can affect more ownership, you know, following Catholic principles, but without the state coming and saying, okay, well, we're going to take this and give it to this guy over here because that's, that's how we're going to redistribute it. And the, usually the state is the least competent to do those type of actions. Sure. In fact, if you could like maybe speak about that, because I remember hearing one person, it's actually Dale Alquist or something, we were in a conversation. I, 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 this is years ago. First, I ever learned about distributivism just a number of years ago. And he talked about it would be good if there was a certain proportionality in society where, like, you know, by analogy, there are some people who are very, very tall, there are some people who are small, but if you had a guy that was 100 feet tall, and the next guy was three inches tall, there would not be any proportionality there. Mm -hmm. And so when, when uh, well, to use a name, Jeff Bezos, uh, right. he made $13 billion in one day, one day, $13 billion. And yet that necessarily isn't uh, 
proportion to what some of his laborers are making in the warehouses of, of Amazon. So not to have expropriation of people's funds, that would be against the seventh commandment, as we're saying. But how about just a little bit more proportionality in society, where there's some who are wealthier and some who are not as wealthy, but at least some have a stake in the games or skin, uh, as we're saying. That's a trickier part. Um, so you get, I mean, especially when we have in the, the way things exist now, if we were going to move into a situation. So, that, so you could have a competitor that sets up on that kind of model, but that takes a lot of investment and a lot of money. Um, and and uh, trying to go up against somebody like Bezos is, um, although he is stepping down, but still uh, against a behemoth like Amazon, I mean, it's probably not going to happen. And so I think there, things like that have to die more of a slow death because the nature of what Amazon is, is a worldwide system of distributing things. And you get, you order this and you have it the next day. Well, isn't that great? Um, and this goes to one of the arguments that capitalists often make against um, advocates of a third way. They say, well, capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty and given them more material goods than, than any other system in the entire world. Well, yes. And, um, Germany under Hitler was uh, lifted more people out of poverty <laughs> than the Weimar Republic did following World War One. It wasn't a great, well, only if you were a certain class. Um, if you were like myself of Jewish extraction, it was not going to be very good for you. Um, so and so on and so forth. But materially, it was better under Hitler. And materially, he had provided these things. So does that mean that, you know, so that alone is not an argument for why something's good, because obviously in the case of, uh, you know, Germany, Nazi Germany, it's not good. So when you, when you look at, you know, yeah, capitalism has done that, but it has created this massive disparity. And, and some of that's in the control of technology. Some of that is when technology develops, it can be developed in a way that follows more of a distributive line or capitalist notion of it so that um you you look at for example if we go back um in the middle ages there were you know we talked about guilds and there were guilds for all these sorts of different things and uh from merchants down to blacksmiths down to you know so many to artists and if you had developed new technology you would actually share it within the guilds and i know modern people balk at this oh, why if he could patent that he could make you know millions and millions of dollars and well yeah and no, because if we look at, for example, the inventor of the steam engine had uh, the steam engine patented. And so nobody could labor on it and improve it. And then he had the parliament uh, extend the patent for an extra 20 years. So it's about, I think it became a total of 50 years. Nobody could work on it. Now, one of the uh, partners, I can't remember the names, one of the partners who created the steam engine um, was still alive when the patent finally ran out. And then people started laboring on it. He saw that and employed people to, to, to do other improvements to it. And the next thing you know, he was actually making more money now that the patent had expired than at any time while that patent was running, right? Just because it was creating new opportunities and new business, whereas the patent was limiting that, the actual progress of technology. So that's one area where, again, the government overreach comes in and trying to protect things and it actually makes it worse, right? But beside that, um, Technology is one of those things that, I mean, you can use it to centralize, such as the, the Industrial Revolution centralizes. It brings everyone into the factory where they have to work on these large machines and thus, uh, you know, destroying traditional businesses and the home. Now, 
now as technology progresses, because this is a criticism is levied against capitalism, often by socialists, sometimes by distributists too, and and, and it's not usually levied correctly. Um, they'll say, oh look, capitalism destroyed all these people's livelihoods because this new thing came along and they couldn't produce anymore. Well, necessarily there's going to be change that has to happen as technology changes. It's just, that's just reality. You can't get away from it. You can't impede it by saying, okay, well, we're going to disallow that technology so that way these people keep their jobs. What you do is update your business, update what you produce or how you produce it in order to reflect the change in technologies. And so you see, um, I, I always managed to bring something, tobacco into something, but uh, one of the more famous uh, makers of pipes and pipe tobacco, uh, the Dunhill Company, I believe it was Henry Dunhill, unless I'm mistaken. He had inherited a saddle business from his father at the time when the automobile was taking over and the writing was on the wall. If you made saddles, you're going to be like in a niche market. Um, and, and so, so he uh, changed what he did. And he took all the leathering and all the tools and all their know-how and transformed it into uh, producing uh, motoring accessories. And which then the wealthy who had motoring cars, they had the money, so they would come and buy these accessories. And then he came up with the idea of trying to make a pipe you could smoke while you drove. Well, it actually didn't work, but it got him going in, into pipes, and that's how he gets into tobacco. It became a world-famous um, pipe tobacco company. So that will happen. And so it, it, to new technology needs to be embraced in such a way where we're actually still maintaining our ownership, but... We are, you know, but we're also moving ahead with the technology. So you see today, you have decentralizing technologies all the time. Uh, the, a 3D printer, for example, uh, that those are becoming more and more likely to be just a household item in the future. Um, and that puts an end to centralized factory manufacturing. Uh, there are 3D printers that can even do metalwork. There are 3D printers that can do all sorts of things, and they're not quite out there yet, but they will be. And what would you, you know, you'll have a big market for designing plans and such. What does that do? That you know, you can creatively then design your own products and produce them that way, or just things you happen to need. So, and then, you know, then what happens to manufacturing? Well, it disappears. And then we, we have niche markets that we can recreate. So the, uh, there's so much creative potential in human beings that, um, you know, but we need to have that beginning philosophy, which is the, you know, the, the principle again, like we said, of subsidiarity of uh, capital ownership and you uh, know ways to maintain it and to value that work and that's how one of the ways to to bring in the proportionality short of the government just coming in and just, just um whether it's uh, some kind of expropriation or putting in some you could have something where the government for those who favor those distributors to favor government action more you could have something where a law that requires employers to cut uh, you know, the employee into the, the, the value of what they create with their labor by giving them ownership options and things of this sort, like employee stock ownership and such, um, as a way of bringing, you know, more access to a, a basically future savings. And so they can get into that capital. You could do that. I don't know if ultimately that would be effective, especially as we're asking the government, which it was, it's against their interest to do that because they get the money from people like, you know, Bezos and, and such. Uh, it's where they get funded. Um, so, you know, whether that would work or not, it's a, it's a big question. But at least in principle, that idea is something that, that could be tried. And that's one of the other things about distributism is that, uh, you know, I mean, it's been done in one way or another throughout the world, throughout history, in one way, shape of time or in this facet in time as a full-out system 
Um, it hasn't been fully implemented since you, know, you could argue the Middle Ages in certain ways. In certain ways, that's true. Um, but it's, it's flexible because it's simply saying we're trying to implement Catholic principles into the market. So maybe you don't want to call it distributism. I'll call it, you know, uh, Catholic capitalism, if that's what votes your fancy. But you're following all the same principles. That's all that Catholic social teaching requires. So if that's the way you want to go about it. But either way, um, you'll run into problems like this. How do we obtain that proportionality? Oh, that didn't work. So again, you, you would have to work out the principles to try to get around that to one, maintain both distributive and corrective justice. And two, um, you know, making sure that we, you know, we're, we're faithful in what the church has actually taught us on these matters. So I did, what uh, sort of like policies, what sort of policies would a distributivist want to uh, put into the economy? For example, things like, um, you know, if you had monopolies being formed or the dangers, let's say, of someone cornering a market and sort of um, suppressing competition and sort of dominating and price fixing. And what would be some things that distributors would hope that you know, would, would they support regulation? I mean, maybe not expropriation from people, but regulation rules to prevent the sort of, you know, un unfortunate sort of occurrences where, you know, some people are, you know, um, in cornering a market or whatever the case. What, what, what are some things that a distributors would, right. would happen with an economy? Regulation. Numbers, yeah, a number of those things are actually, or at least should be covered by natural law or by a local, and it should be, again, the local authority where these places are operating and, and happening, that uh, it takes over to enforce whatever kind of laws. And so um, I guess in our current system, it's, it's trickier uh, because of the way that our, our constitution is set up. The constitution acknowledges the federal government and it acknowledges the state government, but it doesn't acknowledge a city or a municipal government. And those are, exist only by charters coming from the state legislature. So, uh, and those can be, you know, pulled at will if they so desire. I haven't heard of that happening um, in quite some time, but they could. So, but ideally speaking, it would be at the local level where when you're talking about things that go against, um, you know, either natural law or common law or whatever is commonly set down as the laws for business transactions, which, which should be, um, applied to an equality of action, of just action, not to, that is, everyone has the ability to enter into the market and play by the same rules so that you wouldn't be able to, you know, fix the price fixing is a complicated thing. The whole notion of the just price of a thing. Um, and it, let me see, I've got a note on that. So the just price, uh, it's, it's something you find in a lot of scholastic literature and in the Spanish scholastics also, and uh, so on and so forth. So, uh, so the idea is that a local authority would fix, fix a price uh, of sorts. And so, but not, not arbitrarily. So the scholastics, they weren't fools and they knew about the notion of utility, supply and demand, et cetera, all the things that uh, they talk about today. Um, but what they refused to, to do was reduce a price to a mere economic calculation. So it, what the, the scholastics said is that, um, you know, when they, when they rejected the notions of uh, modern pricing utility, this is uh, the notion of the usefulness to the buyer. So uh, the scholastic Molina puts it this way. One may not accept a higher price by reason of the advantage of gain of the buyer 
uh, that one may not do this is proof from the fact that the advantage is something of the sellers, but the buy. Uh, sorry, let me do this again. I just butchered this entire thing. All right. So Molina says the fact that one may not accept a higher price by reason of the advantage of gain of the buyer is proof from the fact that the advantage is not something of the sellers, but the buyers. Therefore, the seller may not accept payment for it. Otherwise, he would sell what is not his. All right, and so St. Thomas, and I'll bring the, come back to that in a minute. So St. Thomas says, the just price is what is neither more nor less than the worth of something, right? So it's an ethical judgment about the price uh, that precedes the market, an ethical judgment. And the scholastics, on the other hand, when they advocate for the just price, they, they say that due to the account, uh, the due account must be given to market conditions, but they won't entrust it to the market alone. All right, and that's ultimately what Molina is saying is that when you have some advantage, you have to consider the worth of the thing as an ethical and moral judgment, not as a mere economic calculation. Now, those come into it. You don't deny those. And so, and so basically, prices would be fixed by locality. That's the other important thing. Um, you know, coffee beans that you have to ship uh, to somewhere in the United States because it doesn't, you know, in some northern frozen climes such as Idaho. Um, you know, because you can't grow them here, they're going to be more expensive than they are in, or they should be, in Colombia, where you grow them right there, just by necessity, because of the extra costs involved in preservation and what have you. Um, and so you wouldn't charge the same in each place. It would be absurd, apart from there being two different countries. If you have something more local, you grow a large, in Idaho, for example, potatoes. Everyone knows Idaho grows potatoes, although most of that potato production is actually McDonald's, by the way, uh, in the southern Idaho. But um, so most of it ends up being the most of the potatoes we end up buying in the store from Washington, which some of the crazy ways some of the trades between states work. Um, nevertheless, so we produce those here. Now, what about a state that doesn't produce them at all? Obviously, it makes sense that they'll be, they'll be less expensive here than they will be in a state they have to be imported into. Now, what about if somebody tries to introduce a good into a state where you produce the same thing, now we run into the question of protectionism. And, and this is where the classical distributist theory uh, hold under Belloc, for example, or, or, or um, Chesterton, that protectionism as a national policy just because is stupid. But protectionism for a local area that produces a thing and the same thing being produced somewhere else will be more expensive to favor that local business transaction because the favor is always... Uh, toward the side of the local. That's why Chesterton depicts Father Brown, for example, as uh, when he goes into a new uh, place in the Father Brown detective stories, he always asks for the local beer, right? And not, uh, <laughs> not, not, not something produced by, always favor the local thing. He wouldn't yeah. drink Budweiser, you mean? He wouldn't? Yeah. I, he wouldn't drink Budweiser, no. <laughs> I don't think so. It's I got a couple more questions, if it's okay, Ryan, and then maybe we could take some from the um, from the uh, the viewers. Would that be all right? Uh, yes, but, actually, and I should talk about other things. So one, sure. the the relation of money. Um, were you going to ask about money? I was going to ask about. You go ahead first. I was going to okay. ask about how. Um, Okay, you, you go ahead first, and I'll ask the question. All right. So one of the biggest problems in uh, that affects every economic system is money. And where does money come from? All right. And um, in this, especially things get convoluted today because, you know, most people don't really stop and consider this question. And most of the work written 
on the subject is meant to obfuscate and hide the reality rather than explain the reality. So um, money properly, what is it? It's a medium of exchange in and of itself. It has no value as value in the future acquirement of what it, what it represents in terms of acquiring this or that good. So it replaces barter because in barter, it's rare that you will actually exchange all the values precisely. Uh, there will always be somewhere where the barter has to take a compromise of knowing this is slightly less value, but it's close enough where I'll accept it because I really need this. And so you can't get an exact representation of the value, say, between a pair of boots and several loaves of bread or what have you, um, and so, or a window, right, from the glassmaker. So you have now money or something which in and of itself uh, may have no value um, or may have value in this or that thing, but um, you know, such as you could use pay. I mean, it really money. You could use anything you wanted as money. You could use seashells as money, as long as it was scarce enough to be useful, and it was you knew that you could take that in exchange for good A, and you can bring that to someone else and acquire good B with it, uh, or good C, and so on and so forth to X Y Z. Um, and so that, and that's what creates the currency flows, the confidence in the need to use that specific currency, which is one of two things. Either one, uh, goods are consumed at such a rate, everyone knows they can take and combine with the confidence, that currency will move. You, you'll, you'll use it and it'll be taken and therefore I'll accept it too. And the other reason, the more uh, legitimate reason historically why a currency flows is taxes. Government says you must pay your tax in this currency whether that's gold or, or like in England during a certain period, it was tally sticks, which were issued by the crown, not, not just any stick you might cut up, but it was actually a tally that represented the, 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 the wealth and land that you owned um, and, and so on and so forth. And then it would be cut in half. So one half stayed in the treasury. So you couldn't, you know, uh, do anything fraudulent with it. Um, you know, gold and silver, obviously, because they're precious. They're principally, they're scarce. So earlier in medieval theorists used to think that gold had an inherent value as far as money goes. And, but then the Spanish scholastics noted, well, all this gold flowing in from the new world. Um, and now the prices have gone up. The gold is actually not worth what it used to be. And that's when they, they, they start working out the notion of the scarcity of it. And that's what actually creates the value rather than um, in any kind of inherent quality of the gold or the silver. So, but again, in theoretically, you can use fiat currency too. But fiat currencies always tend to break down, right? It's one problem. So it, it, as we've seen with our dollar, which has lost over 90% of its value since about 1920. The, so where does our money come from? You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, the U.S. Mint prints it up. And then, uh, you know, it just comes to us somehow through some magic device or goes to the banks and we get it there. Uh, where the money... Um, I mean, it's true that the mint prints the money, but we actually have a central bank, a private central bank, which prints up fiat currency that the U.S. government owes money for every dollar that comes into circulation. And so that all that money, that cash money is actually debt. It always represents debt that our government owes to the Federal Reserve, our central bank. And in every central bank system that, that works with this kind of usurious uh, fractional reserve lending, it has largely the same apparatus, likewise in England, likewise in Europe, likewise wherever you want to go. So if we have um, 
you know, that money comes, you know, comes into circulation, P, you know, people spend it into existence, paying for goods and services, and everyone knows they need it for their taxes. That's why when you go to the store, they'll take that green paper from you and give you whatever food you've bought. Uh, hopefully it's food. Um, most of the stuff people buy really isn't food, but that's, that's a, that's a rant for another day. So, you know, they take that because they know they have, they can pay their employees in it. Their employees will take it because they know they can acquire goods in that. And everyone knows they pay their taxes. in that. So what happens is that there's other sources for creating money and that comes through banks. And now banks can serve a very positive role in society in terms of investment and other things. But in our society, they, they actually form a very deleterious role. That is, they reduce the value of our currency by putting more out there. That is, they create money. Now, a lot of people who started to, to figure these types of things out, often they put it inaccurately. They say the banks create the money out of thin air. And that's not strictly true. I mean, that's essentially the effect, but they don't create it out of thin air. They create it based on your promise to repay. And, uh, you know, and that, so you, it's not even the asset in question. It's your promise to repay wills into existence, whatever, let's say it's a car. So it wills into existence that 15 or $20,000. Now you go buy the car. And the agreement, of course, is if you don't pay up, they'll get the car. But oftentimes that's more of a liability for the bank than it is a value. It's your promise to repay that wills into existence that $20,000. So now you take that check and you give it to Mrs. B down the street and she banks at bank B, not your bank, which is bank A. And so, you know, she, she now has that check and she, you get the car. She cashes the check at bank B, you're at bank A. And, but none of that money actually changes hands, right? And so now she has $20,000 in checkbook money. So she goes and buys something from person C who banks at a different bank. And they go and buy something at the store as a massive thing, you know, for, uh, from bank D, right? And the, all these checks go between the banks. And, but none of the money changes hands except for maybe differences in their accounting because all the banks in a central bank system such as ours function as one bank. And when they make loans, mortgages, and so many other things, they will money into existence that did not exist before. And that's why we also see the inherent problems of inflationary uh, spirals. Then you go to deflationary spirals because bubbles pop. Why does a bubble pop? Uh, you, some people start defaulting and that money actually disappears from the system. Right. So, so much of it is a big, crazy financial house of cards. But in the, end, in the end, the reality is all our money represents debt. You want to get a house, you have to become a qualified buyer and go through this rigmarole. And, and then if you don't have good enough credit, they're going to charge you more usury for that problem, more interest, um, which in that kind of a transaction anyway is largely sterile. So it's, it's actually immoral. Um, and actually, I do not mean to make a point about usury too. A lot of people get this misunderstanding of what usury is, what interest is. And so, um, so according to the scholastics anyway, in uh, Pope Benedict XIV's teaching in Doom Vix Prevenit is, is the following. Money, you know, following St. Thomas and all the scholastics, uh, money is that, that is sterile. Uh, that is, it doesn't, um, it doesn't produce fruit. It's not labor. It's not capital. So you can't charge interest on money just for its being money and just being in use. You can charge, according to the scholastics, a fee of some sort for the risk that's involved in other things, but it would be something like a one-time fee. And I believe it's Domingo del Soto or it's, um, um, no, not Molina. Um, his name will come to me later, probably in the middle of the night, but he taught in Rome, great Jesuit there, uh, Mariana. 
and there's another M, couldn't remember. So Mariana, they both say that any more than 3% for a fee in, in lieu of risk and such would be theft, just like that. Mm-hmm. And they we're talking about a one-time fee for the life of the loan, not this compound interest that's constantly coming off it. So now, uh, on the other hand, let's Hiller Belloc gives this example, and, and he draws it from uh, some of the moralists because I found similar examples in there. If you got a mining operation and you have a crew that knows there's X amount of mine in this of iron in this mountain, and they could mine it, but they don't have enough money to get off the ground to do it. Now you have someone else that comes in. Uh, you know, some local person with a decent amount of money, and he's going to fund the operation, right? And so, you know, so he puts that 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 money in, right? And they they get the iron ore out. It's sold for X amount. Now he's entitled to the return of that money plus the the percentage of share of the profits that he's earned thereby, right? And then that's worked out and understood right. and agreed. And now that becomes an enforceable contract. So because it's 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 fruitful. The money is now fruitful. It's not money being produced by money. It's money that's being produced through fruitful labor. So now it's not usurious, right? And that's why usury is a sin is because it offends against the goodness of God because you're trying to get something for nothing. You're trying to get something without applying any labor. You're trying to get something without uh, a value being involved, right? And a lot of people don't realize it. So that's another thing is, and then how do we take down a system like this? It's, it's a massive system. Now, the libertarians don't really have a good argument for this because the Fed is a private institution and they often revere private institutions, um, even though it has complete control over all the money that's given by the Federal Reserve Act. Um, so the libertarians say, well, if we just um, if we ended the Fed and made it so it was no longer the private bank of the government, that the whole it all solve itself. So wait a minute. So all the fractional reserve, I even talked about fractional reserve lending, um, which is usury at a whole different scale, that uh, which inflates the currency. But um, And uh, all that's just going to end because you got rid of the Federal Reserve. Well, it's going to continue, actually. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. They don't really have an answer for that. Not that I've seen anyway. Um, I'm glad they want to end the Fed, but they don't seem to know what comes after that. And what comes after that is that we need money that's based on value not on debt. And so to do that, you have to end practices such as fractional reserve lending, where if you have so much in deposits and so, you know, so much on deposit with the, with the um, essential bank, you loan at a nine to one ratio, which actually means that if you have a hundred thousand dollars, you can make, um, you know, nine times, but you can loan out nine times that amount in decreasing sequences. And so of money that doesn't exist and you don't actually have it in your vault. See, people think when the bank loans the money, all that money is covered in the, in the bank. It's not. And some banks around the world have a much higher reserve ratio, 30, 40, or I'm sorry, much lower reserve ratio. So 30, 40, 50 to one. So it becomes an obscene amount of money that they can loan out that they don't actually have a ratio to cover. So, Mm-hmm. So what? Anyway, so that means that when the money is in circulation, it's all based on debt. It's owed to somebody, and of course, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, the piper has to be paid. So how do you get there? <laughs> and it, it's right. um, you have to get out of that. And the one of the the principal ways to get out of it is that it could be a state government if if you want to go that way. It could be a private entity that founds a an investment bank that essentially doesn't loan out. And of course, it's illegal to do that right now. You have to loan at the same standards all the other bank does if you're actually considered a bank. So we need to find some way around that. But if you had your own bank, 
even issuing its own currency locally, where you worked with a local bank to take a currency that's based on the value of the goods and services being produced and people will trade in that and accept it. And you can work on it with the local grocery stores. And if they have the confidence that they can take this money and it will be, they will get consideration for that money. That, that means that uh, they, they will be able to affect paying their employees or paying for goods and services locally or what have you, they will accept the money. Now we've created a currency system that, that can work and that's value-based. And, that's, and this, is, this has been done in this country. In um, Massachusetts, there's a system called Berkshires and they, they basically created a currency through a local bank, which is how it used to be done actually, especially in the old West and whatnot. So, you know, so that's, that's one of those important things. Unless you tackle that system of money, among other things, um, you're, just, you're never, you're never going to get out of a system that is controlled and, uh, and especially is liable to crashes and, um, you know, horrible effects like we saw in 2008, right? So it's a direct effect of these types of practices. So um, if we could maybe just uh, sort of bring it to a close in this sense, I got a question from one of our good people there. Um, and I think it has to do with, you know, what can be done? You know, you've answered some of this already, but, mm -hmm. Two things that I want to cover too. Number one, you said in order for this system to work, people have to want to own their own means of production. They want to. They need to want to own their their private property. They have a stake in the game. And it seems that the modern movement is to pay people's debts off for free. This sort of you know student debts, whatever. But there, there, there seems to be a cost that people are telling me that, well, we'll pay your debts off, but we'll, leave, we'll have your property too. And you can be a renter for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so this person asks, uh, one of our viewers, please share a simple example of a distributed model or guild that can be formed, like practically by a group of traditional Catholics today. Mm -hmm. So how can you encourage, first of all, to have people want to have a stake in the game? And then how in little ways can you begin this distributivism sort of process where you can have small groups of traditional Catholics who are beginning to have the stake in the game, where they're, they're going to have private businesses, small business, ownership, farms, whatever they, whatever they might do. Mm -hmm. So part of that is just to go out and do it, but it's not, it's obviously far more difficult than that. So um, I always tell people, talk to your neighbors. And sometimes that meets with a varied level of success. Sometimes that works really well. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you get all sorts of uh, problems and pushback. People don't want to be neighborly. And that's another problem too with the culture, the rabid individualism that is so, uh, so endemic in our culture. Excuse me. Was the individual is not prior to society, but a lot of people seem to wish it were. And then I've had very, you know, troubling experience with neighbors at different times. Uh, actually, the only good experience. I didn't live there long enough to enjoy it. So neighbors, you know, it's a good policy to have. Hey, what kind of things do you do? What kind of, you know, things can, ways can we help and support each other? But, you know, maybe that's not going to work out so well, especially if your neighbors are pagans or, are, you know, if you see the... Biden Harris uh, sign in the yard, you know, that might not actually be a, a something that's going to work. So 
your church community, especially as traditional Catholics, that's a good place, you know, to meet and say, and, and you can look at it. Um, someone I know in the parish who works for a certain uh, company uh, locally doing a certain job. I don't want to potentially reveal uh, where he's at in case any of them are watching, but um, he was talking about, you know, he's a salesman for this particular company that does particular, you know, services in the house, right. Uh, they're, that are very good and useful. The, um, you know, and so he'd, he'd gone around and then people in the traditional Catholic parish here, he said were the worst and they, they, they really didn't want to help support a fellow parishioner. And they, 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 they just kind of look for the lowest price irrespective of the quality of service being given. Um, and such He's like, well, why aren't we coming supporting each other? I'd be one thing we weren't offering good service, but we are. So why aren't people supporting that? And there is kind of a, I, I don't walk into my parish with arms full of books saying, Hey everybody, you know, come buy this. Cause I mean, you don't want that effect of being the Avon lady as it were. Right. So I mean, a few cards, people know who I am and actually kind of prefer it that way, but not like, I don't want to be a celebrity or anything of that sort. And so, you know, I don't want to come in pushing things on people. Right. But there's the, the opposite to that vice is the virtue. Hey, let's work together. I know that you do this type of thing. You know, what are ways we can help support you and get this together? So that's, that's kind of your first step that sets to form that community. And now it's like, how can we set up, you know, some kind of ownership business? You know, how can we help each other? And like I mentioned, occupational groups, just as to talk, Phil said um, about Americans in the, the very early uh, period after the, the revolution, where they would form associations for almost anything to put up a building, put up a church, put up a school, put up, um, you know, you name it. They would form associations that, that either would raise the money, pay for the work, get, uh, you know, you know, so, so on and so forth, you know, working on these types of projects. And we can do a lot of that now, at least, at least for the moment until everything goes digital and they start shutting down your transactions because they don't like it, uh, which is another uh, topic for another day, um, getting great reset stuff and such. Um, but really th that's your first step. You know, if, if knowing your neighbors is, is um, maybe you already do and that works great. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe they've got, like I said, the, some, some indicator that that's really not going to be a good avenue for you. Go to your parish community and start educating each other. Um, you know, if you want, you know, getting the guidance of the priest, you know, to, to help with any moral questions that might be involved and, you know, try to form, uh, you know, some kind of cooperative to put associations to help people get, especially if, you know, you have wealthy people in your parish who donate regularly to the church, make the pitch, take a chance, sell them. Hey, we want to get, um, you know, invest in getting businesses that Catholics can work at. So they don't have to work mm -hmm. at uh, McDonald's, which is giving so many must so much to Planned Parenthood and things of this sort. God forbid. Um, or uh, my former employer when I was in the salary management there, uh, the the devil's biggest retailer, Walmart. Right? Um, you know, how do we get people so they're not in those types of positions? So that's that's one thing that that can be done. Others are you know learn how to do certain things um, on your own. Nobody can do it all. Nobody can learn anything. Very few people can be truly self-sufficient uh, in, in absolutely every way. Um, but at the same time, you can get sufficient a number of things. And I don't recommend building Catholic communes because this always comes up. Hey, we'll build a big distributist commune, you know, paradise. Every time I ever see people get together, whether it's on Fedbook, uh, which is my word for Facebook, or, uh, you know, whatever in these groups and their forums, and they try to create 
oh, let's have Catholic community. Everyone relocate to this community and we'll form this Catholic community there and it'll be great. And, and then you see the types of arguments that break out in the different types of people. This one's anti-vaccine. This one's pro-vaccine. And this one's, hey, shorts are great. And this one, don't ever wear shorts. They're evil. We're from Satan. This one watches Disney. This one says Disney's evil. This one, and the next thing you know, yeah, I mean, it's like a community like that would strangle each other <laughs> before too long. But it is good though, because even in a, in a community though uh you can you still can network you're not that far away right you can you know network with each other you can make these types of things happen uh you know in somebody in the parish knows how to um butcher and skin an animal and hey you know what all you need is a little bit of your property to raise pigs really you just need enough room for them to be able to move around freely and be happy and feed them good food and then at, after um four to six months, you're going to have bacon. Um, and then let's, you know, help people get to that process, offset some of those food costs, right? Especially as uh, meat is going to get more dear or it's going to come from uh, Supreme Leader Bill Gates or something of that sort, then it won't quite actually be meat. Some, some of this acreage that he has, yes. Well, I want to thank you, Ryan, very much. Um, and uh, I think um, people have benefited from this greatly. And I think that the resources that you mentioned, uh, I think, you know, Hilar Belloc and, uh, and, 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 and uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, and you also mentioned that Jesuit uh, uh, Solidaris. We didn't really get Heinrich, into that, but it's Heinrich Pesch. You still have time so for me to mention uh, something on Solidarism. You can summarize it real okay. quick. Sure. So Solidarism or Solidarity, it's... Um, not to be confused with uh, Pope St. John Paul II's movement against communism. Solidarism is um, a, a philosophy. It's very akin to distributism in a lot of ways. It's actually some of the thought that influences Leo XIII, um, as well as uh, uh, Pius XI. It is based on a lot of the writing of another Jesuit earlier uh, named Taparelli. Right. And so employing principles we've already talked about, like subsidiarity, proportionality, and other things. So solidarism, uh, Heinrich Pesch defines it as the reciprocity and mutuality of human interest based on the rational nature of the human personality and ultimately on God's will. Okay. So essentially, to, um, in other words, people working together. Uh, people in engaging one in their own interest and two, you know, and for others, and based on based first principles and the notion that we are human beings made in God's image and likeness and obliged by natural law and revelation to do His will. So there's three uh, three pillars of solidarism, and and again, this is all very amenable with distributism or whatever third way philosophy you want to uh, argue. Uh, private property is the first pillar. Marriage and family and the state as the guardian of the legal order. Okay, so the last one needs unpacking, but we'll do that quickly. So private property is the sine qua non. That is not just the thing owned, but the rights over the thing owned. Um, and, so, and so the actual ownership in that way is, is um, you know, there, there's no limitation on that. It's the use of it, the where we start having limitations by custom, by law, by, by things of that sort. And so the next one, marriage and family. Why own, own, own property? To establish the, the building block of the state, which is marriage and family. Okay. And then the next uh, view of it, or the next thing is that the state. So what are, what's the state supposed to do? Uh, so for Pesh, the state is essentially the guardian of the legal order. 
and it may offer individuals in non-public social groups under the, under the principle of double effect to you know involve itself to to provision for all the wants of citizens in emergency situations not as the normal behavior right but not in your cradle to grave coverage which has all the hallmarks of, of you know reintroducing slavery as we see today but rather to assist in in a necessity and so obviously to maintain corrective justice to assign a, you know a goal to the economic system would be to demand in effect the very disappearance of the problem of the economy itself so you don't have um Let's see. Let me get this quote from Passion here as we're running out of time. Social economy must be organized on a basis of private enterprise and considerable freedom to compete in productive activity and in the determination of one's consumption pattern in order to allow for self-responsibility. So solidaritism, so basically from that building block of the family, which engages in activity to procure, much like that, that definition we gave earlier, that uh, economics is for the acquiring and uh, producing of, of ca you know, capital into wealth and goods and services so that the family can acquire what it needs to serve God and well in this world, right? And so the similar idea is that, is that um, for Pesh, you know, is that all, all of these principles come together for those three pillars to make sure the family is able to do that. Nip in the state is essentially only supposed to come in to make sure, you know, you don't have things where, uh, like St. Thomas says, a man tries to buy up all the bread in the world, right? Could a man buy up all the bread in the world? And you see a, a microcosm of that when there's a famine and somebody's bought up all the bread because he wants to sell it at exorbitant prices. And um, that's actually immoral. I know the capitalists all have their argument why that's actually good for the economy somehow. Um, but the state can step in and say, no, what, what, and again, what is the ethical or moral worth of this thing before the transaction goes in is really important for the Spanish scholastics. Right. Um, and so you can't just, well, we're going to charge 20 times the normal price because nobody else can get it. No, no, no. This is an emergency. Now, normally we're not going to fix the price. And if the prices rise as a general rule, because of you know something, but in this individual famine when people are starving, we're not going to allow you to do that. And that's essentially where what the government will do besides, um, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And that's ultimately social justice, really. When you get down to it, is it's not um, what a lot of people think it is, uh, which would properly be more aptly said socialist justice, the way it's used today by a lot of people, but rather it's. Um, a particular virtue directed to the common good, not the individual good. It makes individual virtues possible, but does not replace them. And social justice makes it possible for people to help themselves individually or with others. And so the common good here is the vast network of institutions within which human persons become more virtuous. It is not... Uh, the aggregate of individual goods or goods owned in common, which is the way a lot of people treat it today. Very good. What's your website uh, for your publishing uh, uh, company? www.mediatrixpress.com. Okay. Wonderful resource for people to, uh, to look up for the future. Thank you, Ryan, for all of your efforts tonight. And uh, thank you for people for tuning in. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to come tomorrow for our Lady of Lords Feast Day.
Let's be let's end with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you, Father.